90% water. It delays and slows the wrinkling of your skin as you age. So there's a reason to stay hydrated. It actually cushions your brain and your spinal cord and other sensitive tissues. Right? Staying hydrated is involved in the production of your hormones and neurotransmitters. It regulates your body temperature. It aids in digestion. Water flushes and cleans out the body of toxic waste. It helps maintain uh, and regulate blood pressure. Uh, water helps get nutrients and minerals to different parts of the body. It helps your airways. The more dehydrated you get, right, your airways constrict, making your allergies and your asthma and all those things much more, uh, much more of a problem. Water prevents kidney damage. It boosts performance during exercise, and it aids in weight loss, right? And all that's great, okay? But it's not the most important thing water does. The most important thing that water does is it keeps you alive. Because a person can live up to three weeks without food, they'll die after three days of no water. Now, while it's clear that keeping us alive is the most important thing that water does, it does not make those other 14 things that I listed for you irrelevant. But they still matter. They're still a net positive to you and your life and your experience. They still operate in ways that make our lives better. And I point that out because of the series that we're in. We're in an Advent series called He Shall Be Named. It's based off of this prophecy in Isaiah 9 about the birth of Jesus, where Isaiah, prophet of the Lord, perfectly prophesied Jesus' birth 700 years before it came to be. In Isaiah 9, 6, at the end of that verse, he gives four names that Jesus will be called. And he says, he shall be named, and he lists the four names. And if you've spent any time at church at all, then you've heard that you need Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And that's true, by the way. It's 100% true. It's the most important thing. The most crucial thing that Jesus does for us is he reconciles us back to God. By being born, right? By taking on human form and living the sinless life that you and I could not and have not lived. And then going to a cross and suffering and dying to pay our penalty and then rising again. The Bible is clear. If we believe in him, right? We surrender to him, put all of our faith and trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone. We are forgiven of our sins in full. We are reconciled back to our God and we're given life forever with him. Jesus literally keeps us alive forever. And we spent the last week talking about the incarnation, right? That, that very thing that our God came for us, our God became one of us to offer us life forever with him. But one of the reasons I'm really excited about this series is that's not the only thing that Jesus does for us. It's the chief thing, right? It's the most important. Forgiveness and eternal life, those are really crucial things. But it doesn't make all of his other benefits irrelevant. In fact, I'll go beyond benefits and just use the word need. The reality is that I'm so tremendously messed up as a sinner that there is no shortage of ways that I need Jesus. And here's how Jesus put it in John 15. He says, the one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. He's using the, the imagery, the analogy there is a vine and a branch. And so we remain in him, we produce much. And here's what he says, because you can do nothing without me. Now that language might feel insulting to you, but Jesus didn't get things wrong. He stated outright, you can do nothing without me. But the one who remains in me, the one who abides in me, the one who dwells in me, he or she produces much. 
And so in this series, we're going to look at the, each of these four names that Jesus has given, and we're going to unpack the meaning of the name and then look at how Jesus fulfills perfectly each of them and then talk about how that you need that aspect of Jesus in your life right now. And the goal is this, that we will greatly increase our dependency on Christ and greatly decrease our dependency on ourselves. And so let's look at the verse that the whole series is hung upon. As Isaiah 9 verse 6 says this, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And our focus today is on that first title, Wonderful Counselor. And to help frame our time, we're going to look at a passage in the New Testament. And I'm going to invite Brooke Hogan up to read today's passage to us. It's going to be Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. And if you're physically capable, would you please stand to honor the reading of the word of the Lord this morning? Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on a solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the flood waters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. Thank you, Brooke. You guys have a seat. So last week, to kick off this series, we looked at the just amazing reality of the incarnation, right? The greatest miracle ever is that God will become man. And his message to us in that is, I see you, and I see your hurt, and I see your pain, and I see your struggle, and I see your darkness, and I give you myself. And in me, you will have everything you need. And that passage in Isaiah was a prophecy 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And all of it came true exactly like it was prophesied. Jesus perfectly fulfilled all these titles. And the first title that we read there given to Jesus is Wonderful Counselor. And so let's unpack that for a second so we understand what those words mean in Hebrew. The word wonderful that we translate wonderful really means incomprehensible. The idea is that it's awe-inspiring. It's leaving people amazed. It kind of connotes the idea of boggling people's minds. And if you've been with us, you know that we've been studying the book of Mark as a church for over a year, and we've seen Jesus do this over and over and over again. He kept boggling people's minds. He knew their thoughts even when they didn't say them out loud. Nature listened to his very command. He healed all kinds of sicknesses and injuries. He, again and again, he left people in awe with his teaching. Look at verse 28 that Brooke just read for us. It said, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd was astonished. That, by the way, is not an unusual reaction. That's the normal reaction of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels. He was wonderful. He was awe-inspired. He left people astonished. Counselor is not what we think of. Right, we think a counselor, we think of a good listener, we think of a therapist, right? Counselor, in, in the Old Testament context, would be like a royal king who carries tremendous wisdom and leads his people into it, right? And so the biblical argument for Jesus having tremendous, awesome, awe-inspiring, mind-boggling wisdom is open and shut, if you can track with me for just a couple of minutes, I'd like to lay out the case this morning from the Bible that Jesus' wisdom is completely unmatched. And when you talk about wisdom in the Bible, you have to mention the name Solomon. 
Solomon was was an Israeli king in the Old Testament. He was established uh, at a young age, and God offered Solomon anything that he wanted at the start. He said, whatever you ask for, I'm going to give it to you. And instead of asking for riches or power or, or great fame or prestige, what Solomon asked for was wisdom. Lord, give me wisdom to do this job. And the Lord was moved by this request. Here's what the Bible says in 1 Kings 3. Is that it pleased the Lord that Solomon had requested this. So God said to him, because you requested this and did not ask for a long life or riches for yourself or the death of your enemies, but you asked discernment for yourself to administer justice, I will therefore do what you've asked. I will give you a wise and understanding heart so that there's never been anyone like you before and never will be again. Based on this request, God, God gives Solomon tremendous wisdom. Right? If you look at the Old Testament, right, there's two wisdom books in there, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Solomon wrote both of those. And, he, and people in his day would travel from all over, from foreign nations, to come and listen to and follow and adhere to the wisdom that the Lord gave Solomon. They were actually rulers of other nations who would come and listen to Solomon's wisdom. And there never was another human like him. And so for the Israelites... Right, the standard, the chief standard for elite wisdom was Solomon. And so imagine you have that file. Imagine the reaction when Jesus shows up on the scene. He says this in Matthew 12. He says, the queen of the south, that's one of the, one of the rulers that came to listen to Solomon's wisdom. That the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation to condemn it. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And then listen to this claim. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. Now listen, Jesus was the most humble being to ever walk the earth, but he didn't lie. And so sometimes he just outright claimed what needed to be claimed. He's like, there were leaders of other nations who traveled to hear the wisdom that Solomon had, and me and my wisdom are greater than his. And again, these these aren't arrogant claims because of who it is that's making them. Jesus has endless wisdom because he's God incarnate. He, ha- he was the source. Jesus was actually the source and giver of the wisdom that Solomon had. He was where Solomon got his wisdom from. And now the giver and sustainer and creator and origin of all wisdom is here on earth in the form of a human. Luke chapter 2 supports this, right? It's the only, in Luke 2, we find the only recorded event from Jesus' childhood. He's 12 years old, and he travels with Mary and Joseph and extended family to Jerusalem, and they leave thinking that he's in the, this big caravan with them, only Jesus isn't with them. And they travel a whole day and realize he's not there, and so they go back to Jerusalem to try to find him, and they find him in the temple. And what he's doing is he's sitting in the temple among the scribes and teachers and experts in the Old Testament scriptures and laws, and he's listening to them, and he's asking follow-up questions, and he's sharing things. And this is what Luke 2 says, verse 47, and all those who heard him were astounded. You see the word again? Astounded at his understanding and his answers. And that's at age 12. He's already wise beyond his years. He's wise enough to leave the people who've dedicated their lives to studying those scriptures in awe and astonished. He's already fulfilling the title of Wonderful Counselor. And the clearest def- declarations in the scriptures about Jesus' wisdom are found in the letters in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 1 says this, Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God, and what? Christ is the literal wisdom of God. And the clearest one is in Colossians 2 which says about Jesus, in him are hidden all the treasures, not some of the treasures, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
Now, the Bible could not be clear. Jesus Christ's wisdom is unmatched. There's no one who could ever remotely come close to his wisdom because, again, it's the wisdom of God incarnate. And you know what the best part is? Since he's God incarnate, right, since he took on our form and actually lived among us, lived as one of us, he actually lived out this wisdom for us to see. He left us an example to follow in so many areas, and he was a man under a lot of demand, Right, everywhere that Jesus went, people wanted his attention, they wanted his help, they wanted his healing. Sometimes he tried to get away. We saw that in Mark multiple times and couldn't because the crowds would follow him. But we never see him show signs of decision fatigue. We never see a short-tempered, impatient, apathetic Jesus just gorging snack food and procrastinating pointlessly, right? And it's because his wisdom shaped his life. And there's one way that shines brighter than the rest. Jesus' wisdom was displayed in his simplicity. There was an added weight to being Jesus that we don't often think about. Have you ever heard the saying that every yes is a thousand no's? That what you give your time to, right? Everything and everyone else is not getting your time in that moment. And there can be a guilt and a weight to all the people and all the things that are being left out. Well, think about it. Every single time Jesus healed someone, there was a hundred sick people, at least within a day's walk of him, that weren't getting healed. Every time he taught a crowd, there were dozens of other villages that would have had crowds in it that weren't being taught. And so how did he do it? How did he carry all the weight of everything that was asked of him? How did he shake the shame of everything that he didn't get to? The answer is simplicity or minimalism or whatever term you want to give it. He lived his life by really simple, clear creeds. He shared them with a John chapter 12. He says, for I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given a command to say everything I've said. I know that his command is eternal life. So the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. John 14, he tells his disciples, on the contrary, so the world may know that I love the Father, I do as the Father commanded me. See, Jesus did not concern himself with many of the things that we concern ourselves with. He didn't fret or worry or scrap or claw his way to some status that he wanted. What, the God, what God the Father told him to say, he said. What his Father told him to do, he did. He lived for an audience of one. His only aim was to please and obey his Father. And you might think, well, yeah, okay, he was God. It's easy for him to do that. But did you know in his wisdom he gave us really simple creeds to live by? First, for the church, for his followers, the whole, all of us who are followers of Jesus, he gave us not two, not three, not five, not ten missions. He gave us one mission. That's it. Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The church of Jesus does not need to sit around and wonder what to do. There's no need for us to pursue a thousand micro-missions until we're tired and ineffective. We are to go, and we're to make disciples, and we're to teach them to follow. And if what we're doing, right, the efforts we're putting into aren't resulting in that, then stop doing it. If they are, great, keep going. Do you see how freeing that is? And he didn't just do that for the church, right? He, he did it for us as individuals and families. Here's the creed, Matthew 6. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. This is one of the ways that Jesus does not get enough credit. 
He knows us, right? He knows we're not omniscient. He knows that, that we aren't meant to carry the weight of everything. And so he does a great job in his immense wisdom of narrowing it down for us. We are to live for an audience of one, that is God. We just seek first one thing, that's God and his kingdom and his righteousness. We just try to find where he's at work and join him. And we're to be molded more and more into the image and likeness of our creator. And everything else that we're worried about... Everything else that we're stressed over, everything else that we're killing ourselves for and chasing and fretting and running ragged for, he's got it, he says. All that will be covered, right? You don't have to worry about any of it. And in one verse, Jesus gives us the framework for our lives. And he gives us two really simple creeds. Seek God first and make disciples and trust him with everything else. And we know these creeds, we know these verses, they're famous, right? But I have to ask, is that really how you're living? Is that re- does that really define your life? Is that the prism through which you're funneling everything? Do you even know what your life would look like if you did? A lot of times we assume this means, well, I have to quit my job and go be a monk or a missionary or a street preacher somewhere. No. You can seek God first in the career you have right now. You can seek God first in the season of life he has you in right now. You can seek God first wherever he's put you. You can, with his help, let go of worry and stress and unnecessary striving for things that he's already promised to cover. Because there's one more thing about Jesus as wonderful counselor, and it's this. It's that he knew his wisdom was unmatched. I want us to look back at Matthew 7, where, where Brooke read for us again. And this time, I want you to really grasp what he said. Look at verse 24, Matthew 7. Jesus says, Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house in the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house in the sand, the rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew, and it pounded that house, and it collapsed, and it collapsed with a great crash. Again, that's a really simple teaching. But man, is it profound. And don't miss it. Don't miss what he's saying. Jesus takes all of humanity. Think about it. All of humanity, and he narrows it down to two camps. He says, you can fall into either camp, right? It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your income. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your gender. None of that matters, right? The camps are very different. You can either be a wise person or you can be a fool. Now, there's a large gap between those two, both in declaration and in definition and reality. But Jesus defines them for us. What makes someone wise? It's twofold. Jesus says, this is what makes someone wise. Number one, they hear my teachings, Right, for us, it's hear them, read them, learn them, know them. Right? We expose ourselves to Jesus' his wisdom, the way he viewed things, the way he understood things, the way he declared truth. And then secondly, the follow-up is that. You don't just know them, then you obey them. And that's it. That's the list. You do that, you'll be a wise person. And you sit under Jesus' wisdom. You get to know him and what he taught, how he viewed life, what he says is right, what he says is wrong, and what he says about life and forgiveness and eternity. If Jesus says it, you do it. If Jesus says don't do it, you don't do it. He says that will form for you a foundation of living wisdom, that when the storms of life come, and they come for us all, your foundation will be on the rock, on Jesus, the creator of everything. And your house, right, 
in the house analogy here is your life, your faith, your eternity, your soul, your spirit, it will withstand everything. Now, that's a really powerful definition of a wise person, but it's not nearly as powerful as his definition of a fool. Did you catch it? You know what a fool does according to Jesus? A fool obeys, follows, and listens to, hear me, anything else other than Jesus. Anything. Whatever it is. Could be yourself, your feelings, a religion, society, another human, right? To build your life on anyone or anything other than Jesus is to be a fool. His words, not mine, but I co-sign them. Because what will happen, right, is that the storms of life will come for you too because they come for all of us. And storms have this way of proving the effectiveness of a foundation. And if you build your life on anything else, then your house, your life, your faith, your soul, your eternity, your spirit will all come crashing down. The God, your God and idols will prove to be not up for the challenge. And everything that you've trusted in will fail you. That's why Jesus says it will be a great crash indeed. Now think of how certain you have to be that your wisdom is unmatched and unrivaled to make that claim. And Jesus states it as a pure matter of fact. Why? Colossians 2, because in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He states it as fact because it's so. See, there's a reason that the invitation to us from the Bible, the invitation to us from Jesus is not go be a good person. It's not you're invited to come be a religious person. It's not you're invited to come do these works. But what is the invitation? It's this, follow me. Because Jesus is everything that we need. And apart from him, we can do nothing. So he must be out in front. He must be setting the standard. He must be guiding and leading. And the best part is, when we believe in him, he gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit, right? Which is literally his presence and his wisdom indwelling in us, guiding us and leading us. And into that same wisdom, if we do not quench or block out or grieve his spirit. There has never been another person or being in all of history whose wisdom can match that of Jesus, our wonderful counselor. So what do we do with this? How do we respond to that truth? Well, the first is simply this. I think we should worship our God who's full of wisdom. I told you last week, the incarnation is not for analysis as much as it is for worship. And this will and should be a theme all month long. The idea that, that the God of everything came for us, became one of us, the only reasonable and right response to that is worship. And the, and the more we know about our God, the more we should want to worship. There's this great moment in the book of Romans, right, where the apostle Paul is, is writing and he's struck again at the immense wisdom of God. And listen, I'm going to read this for you. Listen to what came from within him as he wrote this letter. He writes, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and, and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor and who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Can I ask you a potentially really personal question? When was the last time, whether it was a private moment of thought, a quiet time in a devotional, opening God's word, a worship service on Sunday morning, driving by yourself, a time of prayer, anything. When was the last time you were in such awe of God that you broke out in worship? 
I'm not saying you rolled around the floor or do anything like that, but, but in prayer or in singing or in raising hands or journaling or your thoughts, you had a reaction similar to the one that Paul, we just read from Paul in Romans 11, where you're like, God, you are so good. Your wisdom knows no bounds. Your grace never runs out. Who am I that you would love me and yet you still do? When's the last time that happened to you? And if what I'm describing seems completely foreign to you, or you can't remember that last, the last time it happened, then you need to know this. Either your view of God is way too small, or your view of self is way too inflated, or likely it's both. Because in the scriptures, when people thought rightly about this, this is the things that came out. Psalm, chapter, Psalm 8, the psalmist says, when I observe your heavens, when I see the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars that you set in place, here's the reaction. What is a human being that you even remember him? The son of man that you look after him. And so take some time, and I mean this literally, block out time of your schedule this week to sit down, block out all the noise, and to think deeply about who God is. And the more you ponder him, the more you think about the reality of him, it will remind us all of how far short we fall, and then think about how in Jesus he loves us anyway. Not with a begrudging, cold, transactional love, but a grace that superabounds kind of love. And let that lead you into pure and genuine worship. Second thing I think we should do with this is just get over your own wisdom. There's this really great bit of advice in Romans 12, right, where Paul writes, For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Pretty good advice, isn't it? Don't think you're better. Don't think you're greater. Don't think you're higher than you are. And you know why it's in the Bible? Because we all do. Every one of us do. We all think more highly of ourselves than we should. And so I've been a follower of Jesus for decades now. And there are so many times, way more than I would ever want to count or admit or tell you about this morning, where I've made a mess of things. My life was marked by self-inflicted wounds, where I got myself in trouble. I hurt others. I hurt myself. I made my life harder than it needed to be in the moment. And the entire time that all these things happened, I had the a source of eternal, endless wisdom available to me, and I never sought it out. I didn't look to the scriptures. I didn't pray for wisdom over those decisions. Didn't ask for Jesus' input. Why? You know why? Because I had it. I knew it was right. I knew it was best in the moment. So I thought. And then I was wrong. Proverbs puts it this way. All a person's ways seem right to him. They all do, don't they? But the Lord weighs hearts. See, following the Lord's wisdom, following his leading, won't, it, don't get me wrong this morning, it's not going to lead you to a comfortable, easy, carefree life. God will literally take you into the storm at times to teach you. But here's what it will never result in. It will never, ever result in pointless, self-inflicted wounds. Life is hard enough. I don't need to make it worse, you know? Which is why we need to train ourselves to seek God first and always. Prayer needs to be our go-to, not our last resort. We hand God the reins at the start instead of asking him to clean up our messes later. We do what Proverbs 3 says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. And the third way to respond is the way we respond to every truth in the Bible, and simply this, just follow Jesus. Just be the wise person that he describes here in Matthew 7. Learn, hear, study Jesus' wisdom and teachings, and then obey. Especially obey when they go against your feelings and your desires. 
the more and more and more you see yourself as a servant and slave of King Jesus is is good because our king is so good that I can surrender everything to him and know that he won't let me down. And so my encouragement to you this morning is this, especially if you need to hear this. Take the step of obedience that you've been putting off. Take that step of obedience that you, you've known deep down the Lord is asking you to do and it terrifies you and you've come up with all kinds of reason in your own wisdom to say no. Listen, we're gonna know that we truly are a church of Jesus' disciples and followers when we start seeing radical obedience. When people leave jobs and homes and families to serve the Lord in a foreign field, when they give up the comforts and luxuries to give radically to God's kingdom. They let go of idols. They repent of cherished sin. They start saying no. They start freeing up their schedule. They start keeping sports in the rightful place because they're serious about getting more of Jesus and his wisdom in their lives and their homes and their children. And there are those in our midst that are actually doing this, who are walking their neighborhoods, connecting and praying with their neighbors and sharing the gospel. They're going into prisons with the light and hope of Jesus. They're going into schools looking for opportunities to share the light. They're giving of their time to feed for, feed and care for their neighbors. They're opening their homes and their hearts to foster children, disrupting their lives, right, and exposing themselves to possible heartache. Who are radic- there are people who are radically and generously giving, sending and encouraging missions partners around the world who are living their lives looking up away from themselves and seeing how they can help widows and children and people in need and you need to know this that I see you we see you and more importantly God sees you because you are a part of what makes serving the Lord worth all of it to see Jesus take hold of your life and you follow him is beautiful and I pray that you're encouraged in that this morning but to any who are still withholding, to any who are clinging to control, to any who haven't surrendered at that level yet, who aren't truly falling, whatever obedience you've resisted to this moment, let this be the moment you just say yes to the Lord. That you trust Jesus, you trust his leading, you trust his wisdom, no matter how scary the thing is he's asking for, and commit that you will follow wherever he leads. Let's pray. Let's pray.